0: And welcome to Art Waves, a podcast about arts and culture in small rural towns. My name is Marian Myers, and I'm curious to learn more about the arts and the impact they have on my small town of Port Perry in the rural township of Skugog, Ontario, in the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of Skugog Island. I've discovered a wide variety of passionate people creating, coaching, and connecting in my community. And today we're talking to Tamara Green, who is a personal chef. Welcome, Tamara. Thank you, Marian. glad to be here. Oh, great, oh, we're glad to have you. So, um, describe for us, Tamara, what do you do? What's, what's a personal chef? And what's unique about you as a personal chef? Yeah, so a personal chef, as opposed to a caterer, they
1: go in and they personalize menus for you. A caterer often has set menu, they're often just dropping off food and then they run and then it's up to you to figure out what to do with this food. Um, Whereas I'm there generally for the long haul, uh, I come in mostly to people's homes um, to create just special events for them. It's basically bringing a restaurant to them and that they get to have input in the menu that they're getting rather than saying this is a solid set menu this is all you can choose from i like to personalize it to the kind of people that i'm talking to but um inside of that i am doing indigenous cuisine so i'm only serving food that is pre-colonial so i'm not using any ingredients that were available um after the settlers came it's only before the settlers came uh which i think is important um when you're a canadian to know what's unique to the land you're living in because it really shapes the culture and uh, the way people think about what food um, they eat
0: and so you know what what role does food play in indigenous culture then?
1: Mm-hmm. well it there's a there's a big um i'm, I'm just going to say culture in indigenous uh, communities, and there's a lot of communities, but they all have this in common that there's a lot of hospitality. And uh, several of them often traditionally would have a pot of stew or tea boiling unceasingly in the middle of their camp so that when the hunters came they would have something to refresh themselves with as soon as they came back or if a traveler came through they'd have something to offer them so I really like being able to have soup on my menu to keep that tradition going of the of the hospitality of the warmth that comes from Um, soups traditionally even in French culture are known as restoratives because they restore your energy when you're really weary. They just, there's so much nutrients in them. Um, but beyond that in the culture, food is not only, uh, enjoyable for the palate, um, but it's healing as well. It's what keeps us going, uh, mentally and physically, uh, even spiritually, um, that it just it, it's the intersection of, of health and art and uh, entertainment at the same time. Um, so to be able to keep that going, yeah. Tomorrow, what are some of
0: those foods then?
1: Well, uh, such as uh, spruce cones. Uh, years back, I had a whooping cough and the Ontarian virus at the same time. And I had this for about a week, and I was just coughing so badly, I couldn't really speak anymore. Um, But I remember being on my back porch and looking out at the spruce trees and seeing the green cones. And for years, I'd been cooking with the spruce tips, which are rather citrusy. Um, You can cook them similar to the way you cook asparagus. But I was just wondering about the green cones and what use there is for them because... Um, there's a use for everything in different ways. And so I did my research. I contacted some people that I knew and I found out that the green cones were used traditionally as a cure for whooping cough.
0: Wow.
1: So I had it, I sipped on it for 24 hours. The next day it was like, I never had whooping cough. My voice was completely back to normal. Oh, that's very mm-hmm. So cool. that's one, for example.
0: Yeah, and that's beyond what many people. Your first, uh, w- you know, the first ingredients I would name would be well, wild rice and turkey, and and but you came up with spruce tips and mm-hmm. and and uh, the young, immature spruce cones. Right? Yes,
1: they're so rich in vitamin C and antioxidants. That's the
0: the healthy part in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's your link? What's your personal link to um, indigenous food?
1: Well, my grandfather is Mohawk. uh, And when I was still at Durham College going through the culinary management program, I was in my second year and I was just thinking about my uh, grandfather. um, And I just wanted to do something to honor him for uh, how he had taken care of my father growing up. And I just, I, my mind went to making a three course, six nations meal and I'm like, that sounds like a great idea. I don't know how to do that. So I started contacting, uh, band offices, museums, uh, as well as just indigenous people that I knew to find out what indigenous food is. And the first thing I found out is no one knows because they were coming back at me with answers of uh fry bread and they gave me recipes that had wheat flour and cow's milk and baking powder in it Um, none of those were available before the settlers came there was no cows here there was no wheat here that's not how they made it clearly they ate food before the settlers came so what was that um so that got me really interested so i dug in further into uh ethnobotany which is the Uh, study of uh, cultures, uh, food and food sources and so through that I contacted over 30 more uh, museums, historical centers and uh, band offices and just scrutinized all the information even went on to USDA's uh, plant database to find out what they said was uh, indigenous to certain areas. And I was building up a database and, like, okay, these are the ingredients I can choose from, finding out traditional methods of cooking, but being more flexible with the methods and bringing the methods into modern day. As my father says, you know, if the settlers never came, um, the indigenous people would have developed modern methods themselves. They might look a little bit different, but they would have gotten there themselves. So being able to honor Uh, how they would represent those uh, developments and technology as well through that.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When we were speaking before, you mentioned sunchokes. So tell us about sunchokes.
1: So sunchokes are one of the foods that I find uh, fascinating and a great example of how Indigenous food is uh, misunderstood, but uh, how it can easily be approached. So when, uh, I believe it was Samuel de Champlain first came uh, and was doing a survey of the uh, St. Lawrence River. He found the uh, Mohawks uh, planting sunchokes and harvesting sunchokes. And later on, uh, Lewis and Clark observed many settlers getting severe cramps and just all these ailments from eating sunchokes. The problem was that the settlers didn't know how to cook the sunchokes but the indigenous tribes had learned how to cook with them um, but the settlers still didn't uh, didn't understand that so they ruled sunchokes out to be a poisonous food and the they thing is they didn't know you had to
0: boil the heck out
1: of it you have to yeah you have to cook it for uh, at least uh, 48 hours to turn what is an ind- indigestible indigestible form of sugar into a digestible form of sugar. Mm. Uh, Something like the potato that we eat every day is technically a poisonous food if you eat it raw. And the same goes for sunchokes, but you just have to take that concept to a further degree and cook them for a longer time. Uh, And there's many foods like that. You just have to know how to cook with them, uh, like stinging nettle, you know? It can sting you, it can burn your skin, but as soon as it hits boiling hot water, that sting is gone. And, and it's a it has great
0: tea. Great
1: tea. Lots yeah. of nutrients
0: in it. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I really like that mm-hmm. tea actually. Yeah. Um, it, now so your, um, personal talk on food, what, what your, what's your personal link to the food and the culture? Um, you talked about Durham college, uh, you talk about, um, your grandfather, but what do you do now with it? What, describe your business, the the personal chef business.
1: Yeah, so my business now, like I say, is uh, serving pre-colonial food um, and gently sort of educating both the uh, indigenous um, community and the settler community about what that is, at the same time offering them, you know, something tasty for their palate. Uh, and a little entertainment. Um, As I say, I go often into people's homes to just create a special meal for them. Say they have an anniversary, they're having some guests over, um, they don't wanna do the cooking, I'll come in and cook for them. Um, But I've also done a lot of business uh, lunches. I've done buffets, I've done a few vendor situations at powwows and such. So it's very broad. Um, Mm -hmm. That's the uh, personalizing part of the personal chef. And name
0: your company for us mm-hmm. tomorrow. So, so my
1: company is Indigenesis Personal Chef.
0: Okay. And how would people contact you? What would...
1: So they can contact me by phone, 705-308-6104, or they can go on to uh, my Instagram, and there's a link there to my website, and my Instagram would be at Indigenesis, which is I-N-D-I, the word Genesis, underscore personal chef.
0: Okay. Indigenesis underscore personal chef. That's right. That's it. Okay. That's really good to know. Make sure we get that in there. Um, so what's it like to build a catering or a personal chef, excuse me, a personal chef business in a small rural town?
1: Well, it has its advantages, actually. Some people would think it's a small town. It's going to be hard to uh, start your own business. There's a lot of uh, competition, you know, there's, it's hard to get your name out there because there's not a lot of people. But I find that the advantage is word of mouth. In a small town, everyone knows each other. Everyone's a lot more uh, open to talking to each other, sharing with each other. So word of mouth is a great tool um, in, a, in a small town. So for me, when I started, like I say, I was working on that meal for my grandfather. And As I was just trying to work out the logistics of it, what I could do, I was sitting in the halls of Durham College and the executive chef of Bistro 67 at Durham College, uh, Raul Soho, he was walking by and kind of cocked his head and was like, what you doing? So I told him what he was doing. He's like, oh, that's interesting. Why don't we put it on here? I'm like. Okay. I'm still a student at the time. I was very nervous but I'm like, okay, that sounds cool. I'm not gonna say no because when is this opportunity gonna come up again? Yes. So we did put on a four-course meal uh on a weekend and it started a uh heritage series. Durham College started oh, uh promoting other fabulous. students' heritage, yeah. which was great. Um when I had the event that I was doing there, uh, Claire Salt who was at the time uh, the CEO of NNLP um, on the Mississaugas, of Island First Nation.
0: Yeah, the business arm of the Yeah, the business arm. Yeah.
1: Uh, she came and she was very impressed with the meal. She got my contact information. A few months later, she reached out about some business lunches that they were having on the island uh, and asked me if I could cater for them. So I did. And from there, I got some more contacts uh, from those events that I did for them. Yeah, and at Skugog
0: Arts, we did a symposium, remember, out yes. at um, the Mississauga's... Um, Health Center. Health Center. Mm-hmm. And we ran a symposium for arts presenters, and they recommended you as our caterer. And we said, well, yeah. that's cool. We love that idea. And so we we had you cater there, and then that led to you also participating in Culture Days. Describe yes. what you do for Culture Days.
1: So for Culture Days, I... Uh, serve uh, free hors d'oeuvres um, again pre-colonial I try and choose uh, three or four varieties something a little bit more unusual for people that maybe it has zero ingredients that they've ever heard of but uh, really are very abundant around them every day once they they're pointed out uh, something a little bit more approachable you know something maybe turkey based or cranberry based or maple based. Uh, and then two other in between ones, just to get people, you know, excited about what's what's around them. I try and provide some information, whether it's in paper form or just verbally, uh, about uh, how to forage. Um, how to do it in a responsible way
0: and well that you did bring up an interesting point then mm-hmm. how do you source these the, the sunchokes the um the spruce tips that how do you source them
1: yeah so that was a problem when i first started out um that first event I had for uh, the Mississaugas of Skook Island First Nation, I was like, okay, great. I have my first independent event. No idea where to get these ingredients. I know what they are. I don't know where to find them. Uh, so I did a lot of research. I found some items, um, but it kept my menu very limited for a while. Uh, since then, I have gotten contact with uh, some local foragers. There's a fellow in Zephyr, um, Bob Burroughs. Uh there's a company uh, and what does he forage
0: mm-hmm. for you? What do you get? So
1: a wide variety of things, he's very flexible. I, I mostly get from him uh sunchokes, I get stinging nettle, um cattail hearts, spruce tips, uh highbush cranberries. Um he, he's got a a great location where uh he has a farm himself and other farmers around the area that allow him to uh forage on the backs of their lots. Uh, because it's marshy, and most um, edible indigenous food uh, grows well in marshes, there's a great variety of items that he can choose from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are mushrooms uh, part of that cultures? Several of uh- them are. So some of them have been introduced, but uh, mushrooms, yeah, they're they're pretty much a universal um, food. They grow everywhere. Um, just on different varieties. So chaga um, that grows on birch trees um, is indigenous. Um, So I make a lot of teas and broths for them. I like to make a broth from chaga and then cook my wild rice in that.
0: It Mm. gives it a really rich, deep flavor then. yeah, Almost a meaty flavor, I Mm -hmm.
1: would imagine. Exactly, which is great if I'm doing a vegan dish. Um, Just quote-unquote beefs it up a little bit (laughs) without
0: putting beef in it, you know? Yeah, excuse the pun. Yes. Oh, that's really cool. And so have you got more people than him looking yes. for ingredients? Yes. Uh,
1: so there's a uh, father and son company based in Toronto uh, called Forbes Wild Foods. And they forage items uh, east to west coast in Canada. Um, so they have a lot of foragers working for them. And uh, they do it very responsibly as well, um, where they make sure they're not over foraging, um, they're doing it in pockets here and there. They let certain items be able to
0: have seasons of regrowth, right? Um, like leeks, wild leeks. You have to be very yes. careful to just take a tenth of a in in a little area and then move on, and then exactly. just take a very small amount. They take so long.
1: They do, and okay. there's there. I mean, there's some items like spruce tips where you don't have to be as concerned about uh, hurting the plant or not being able to spring back. That's it's always going to be able to regenerate itself. Um, but even with spruce chips, sometimes I do my own foraging. And I, I basically go by a rule of thirds. So I take one of every three. And spruce tips is a great example because at the tip of every spruce branch, there are three young shoots. So I just take one and I leave two and move on, take one and leave two and move on. And for most plants, I use that um, method. There's some where you don't need to, there's some where you have to go even further and say only one out of six, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But as a general rule, one out of three
0: works. And what well. do you do with the spruce
1: tips? Mm-hmm. So, spruce tips, like I, I said earlier, they're very citrusy. So, they have a bit of a, a lemon flavor to them. Um, but basically, in of themselves, they're more like asparagus. So when they're very young, only about an inch long, they've just shed that paper tip that's on the uh, Mm -hmm. very tip of them Uh, you can steam them Um, if you're going to do it in indigenous way uh, i like to saute them in a little bit of duck fat Um, sometimes i season them with a little bit of uh, juniper berries or some uh, sumac Um, If you're not doing it in an indigenous way, you could sauté them in some butter, um, even add a little bit more lemon juice or dill if you wanted.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And. You know, I uh, we always laugh in our household when you think, "Whoever thought to eat, like cook the first artichoke and thought that yes. was a good idea?" <laughs> you know, it, and I find that with like the mushrooms, what do you, some of them are poisonous? How do you know? How who is the poor guy that found out? You know, mm-hmm. and so I guess the sunchokes was a good example of they figured it probably caused them problems until they uh, the earliest people using it discovered. Well, if we we boil it for two days, it's fine. So, yeah. you know, there must have been a lot of experimenting going on in early days of food production like that.
1: There was. There was um and <laughs> I mean, I I've, I've definitely had those same conversations before. Um I remember seeing a a comic once um that was a drawing of just all these mushrooms and beside each one said poisonous 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 and in the very center there's a mushroom that says cure for paranoia (laughs) 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 i think of that every time uh when i'm cooking but a lot of it uh is based in a survival culture right uh you're hunting gathering sometimes you don't don't really have a choice you know you're gonna die if you don't eat so you take a chance and you eat an item right yeah yeah okay Uh, and from that you learn uh and you could start to tell with certain plants that look similar they're they're both roots maybe that probably you're gonna cook them the same like sunchokes as I say you have to cook them for a while there's other uh roots and tubers that are cooked the same way um there's a plant called camas and it has a root that looks similar to an onion and it's also roasted for a very long time just like sunchokes for a similar reason with it it's not really necessary you don't have to cook it that long but it's cooked that long for the same reason Um, so sometimes you know you find out with the one and you just cook everything that way (laughs) to start until you can slowly ease off and find out new methods of doing it in a safe and controlled manner yeah yeah
0: um, so, you know, what impact do you think that your focus on indigenous food has had on this community?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I've had some great conversations with people. Uh, they're just astounded to know that, uh, you can eat stinging nettle. They're astounded to know that, uh, sun are a thing. And for me, the... The biggest impact is that that I've had in the Indigenous community because a lot of them don't know what Indigenous cuisine is. Um, A lot of what has been eaten on reservations for years is very processed food. A lot of lard, a lot of deep fried food, a lot of canned food, things that aren't necessarily the healthiest for you. But Indigenous cuisine at its heart is all about health. Um, So to be able to bring back some of that health um, to sort of win some ground on diabetes and uh, heart attacks is great. To give them an option of uh, healthy food that also explores uh, culture and heritage um, is a great impact that it's had so far.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even a chance when it's something's not familiar to introduce Um, say the Anishinaabe word for that ingredient too so that there's the language side of it too Mm -hmm. to help um, revitalize um, the language. Yeah. So what's next for um, endogenesis? So
1: for me, uh, it's mostly recovering from COVID at the moment. Uh, During COVID, I did a lot of no-contact food delivery, I just prepared the meals, boxed them up, left them at people's doors, um, which was great, honestly, um, to be able to do that. But getting back into live events, going back into people's homes and being able to create those special nights for them, just give them, you know, a night off from cooking. Yeah. And are you going to do some long table dinners or? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm a. Currently, planning with uh, two bloke cider. Um, and of course, in September, I'll be doing uh, Port Perry Culture Days as well.
0: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. Yeah, yours is very popular at Culture Days. Oh, your bison meatballs, right? Everybody loves those. It's great
1: to see the people because often, as a cook, you're just in the back of the kitchen and you never see people's reaction to the food. Yeah. Um, so to be able to interact and uh, talk with people and you know
0: see what kind of questions they have it's, it's a great time I, I know when we start talking to people um at the uh, schuylkill guard space mm-hmm. and we're telling them oh culture days is coming and they'll say oh and is that indigenous chef coming <laughs> that's like their first question <laughs> that's great yeah they just think oh we came only for her <laughs> we came for tomorrow that's kind of cool well, tomorrow. thank you very much uh, Chi for spending time with us today and thanks to The Wanted for their song Before the Fall and the Ontario Trillium Foundation for the grant that got this done. Visit scooglogarts.ca to get the scoop on what we're up to, hit subscribe, uh, join us every Tuesday for an episode of Art Waves.